So I was planning on continuing the series that we've been in called Jesus Over Everything. However, I don't know if you recall, but last week I prayed a prayer in offering, a prayer of agreement that OSU was going to defeat Texas yesterday, and that didn't happen. And, you know, Texas won almost fair and square. So I think I'm going to speak on humility today for all of the gloating Texas fans who've been rubbing my nose in it. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I, there, no lie, at our nine o'clock service, there was someone, I don't know if it's because of, you know, rubbing my nose in it or not, but this individual brought a, a Texas, like a UT branded cooler into church with her. And whenever I made the comment, she held it up and I wanted to make a joke about how you better not be bringing some beer in the church, but I didn't make the joke there. So I had to make it here. So yeah, you know what? We lose sometimes. It happens. On Wednesday, I'm going to be sharing on what to do about unanswered prayers. <clears throat> Should be a great time. But no, I'm, I'm kidding. We are going to continue the series that we've been in, which is Jesus over everything. Jesus is over everything, which is a good reminder. I don't know if you're aware, but Tuesday, we have an election in our nation. And heading into that election, it's important for the church to continue to proclaim that Jesus is over everything. He is over everything. Still, if you haven't voted yet, you should get out and vote. But we are going to continue to proclaim that Jesus is over everything. And guess what? On Wednesday, you know what? Jesus is still going to be over everything. Okay? Again, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't engage. Christians should be engaged. But, come on. But, it does mean that come Wednesday, Jesus is still going to be over everything. And that was the first thing that we talked about in this series is how Jesus is supreme. He is the one who is over all. He is the final authority. And Jesus is supreme. Second week, we looked at how Jesus is sufficient. Okay? He is enough. A lot of times, I think we are convinced of his supremacy, but not fully convinced of his sufficiency. Okay, so Jesus is not only supreme, but he's also sufficient. He is enough for you. He's enough for us. He is everything that we need. And then we looked at how prayer isn't just the warm-up to the real work, but prayer is the work. Prayer is the work. And the Christian life is sustained by prayer, and prayer fuels our worship. That's what Pastor Jacob talked about last week is how worship is reverential devotion. Didn't he do such an awesome job? Love that word. If you weren't here for it, you should check it out on either our YouTube or Facebook because it was an amazing word. He talked about how worship is reverential devotion. And, you know, he also talked about how for those who grew up in church, you know, worship is not just the slow songs that we sing when we gather. And if you've been in church for a while, you know what he's talking about because, you know, we have praise and worship. We have praise and worship. Praise is the fast songs we do. Worship's the slow songs we do. And 
now it's just all worship because no one writes fast songs anymore. I don't know what's, we need to get, you know, Hillsong and Bethel and Elevation back on their game writing fast songs or just write our own fast songs. Tyler, where are you at? So, yeah, so worship, although it includes the musical expression of worship, it's far more than just that. It, worship is orienting your life around something. It's building your life around something is what worship is. And the reason why that's important to distinguish is because I realized in my journey of following Jesus that I could be fully engaged in the musical expression of worship simultaneously actually building my life and orienting my life around something else besides Jesus. That when it came to the music, when it came to gathering together and worshiping, I could be all in that moment. But then I would realize, you know what, the, the thing that's actually driving all of my decisions and the way I think and my behaviors and my allegiance is actually something besides Jesus. We all worship something. Everyone worships something. Because we were designed for worship. That's what in our kids' creed, so something that our kids say every service in, in their service, is that statement, I'm designed for worship. How many of you were here and enjoyed the student takeover we had on Wednesday? It was awesome. So proud of our students and our leaders over those ministries. It was an amazing time. We are designed for worship. So we will worship something. We will orient, we will build our lives around something. For me, one of the things I realized that I was building my life around was success. I wanted to be successful and that was one of my highest values. So what that means is my decisions, the way I thought, all of it placed my personal success at the top. And so whenever I was faced with decisions, I would tend to lean towards whatever would make me the most successful because that's what my value was for. So maybe for you it's success. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's comfort. A lot of people worship comfort. That they will make sacrifices so that they stay comfortable. They won't pursue the dreams, the aspirations that the Lord has placed in their heart because that would come with a cost. And that route is not always the most comfortable route to take. So if you value, if you orient your life around comfort, then comfort is holding a place that should only be held by Jesus. People also do this with other things. For some, it's security. The highest value they hold is safety and security. And so when mindsets or decisions behavioral patterns, all of this is all built around whatever keeps me the most safe and secure. So many different things we can place at the center of our lives. Oftentimes, what finds itself at the center is ourself, more often than not. That we actually build our lives and orient our lives around ourselves. The problem is, whenever you're at the center of your universe, Jesus is not. 
And he is far more capable of holding the universe together than you and I are. And that's what, I mean, Colossians 1 says that very thing. He holds everything together. So for the, the Christian life, our hearts are to be bent, are to be inclined towards devotion and adoration and worship of Jesus. And that goes beyond just the musical expression of worship, although I love that, but it's not just limited to that. It's what we build our entire lives around. And that's worship. And for the Christian, at the center of, of our life, we should, we should find the Lord Jesus. And that is what Paul's gonna get into, is what comes with a life that is built around self and this old self that we once walked in and now what it looks like to walk and live in this new self. And so he's gonna talk about our seeking him and seeking is another way of describing worship. So that's what we're gonna pick up in chapter three of Colossians, verse one. So chapter three, verse one. Before we read that, let me just ask you, because oftentimes you can just hear stuff and go on. But if you haven't really seriously asked yourself the question of what is it that you worship most? I think it'd be good for you to do so. What holds the highest place in your life? What value do you place above all others? And before you just give the Sunday school answer of Jesus, seriously ask yourself the question and look around at your life and say, is, is Jesus really, at the end of the day, the most important thing, the thing that I have built my entire life around? So, just think about it. So, chapter three of Colossians, and this is the chapter that we're gonna be in today. Chapter three of Colossians, if you're gonna commit an entire chapter of scripture to memory, which would be a good practice to do sometime, Colossians 3 would be a great one. Colossians 3 is the creme de la creme of, of this book. And it is, it's beautiful. We're not gonna read it all, but we are gonna read part of it. We're gonna start in verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him also in glory. So in the previous chapters, Paul has been making this case and encouraging the Colossians that Jesus is supreme, he's over everything, and that he's sufficient. So in the first two chapters, he's been building up these ideas and then we get to, to this. What Paul is saying here, again, being mindful of what the previous two chapters consisted of, is if in fact Jesus is supreme and he is sufficient, then there is no 
other option than to go all in on that claim. If it's true, then it calls for, it requires an all-in response. That there can be no other option or no half-hearted allegiance. Paul is telling them, if I'm stating these things and if you believe them to be true, you have to go all in. There is no plan B, there's no alternative. Some might say burn the boat. Burn the boat, go all in on Jesus. Stop hedging your bet with him. Stop coming up with plan B, plan C. It's either, it's either all Jesus or nothing. And the reason why he's saying this is because he's saying there's no neutral ground here is because in reality, there is no neutral ground. The reason why we can't have a neutral response is because there's no neutral ground. Look at what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed either by God or counterclaimed by Satan. The reason why we can't have a neutral response is because there is no neutral ground. Jesus isn't, you know, part of our a la carte spiritual journey where we can pick up different things from different practices, different beliefs, which is, you know, the, the prevailing philosophy of, of our current time, which is postmodernism, this idea that, you know, this is where you get the, your truth, my truth, we all have our own truth because there's no such thing as truth. Those are called opinions, okay? Those are called opinions, not truth. Jesus is not the first step in our enlightenment journey. Jesus is the destination. Jesus is everything. Our life is completely and fully uh, given into him. It's not one step, it's everything. And our new life is now found and hidden in Christ. I love that language. Love that language. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. It's beautiful. For a day and an age where everyone is trying to be the loudest voice, the most famous, Paul is saying, be content with hiddenness because your life is hidden in Christ with God. And this new life isn't just something that happens after the second coming or after you pass away. This new life, he's saying, is also something that, that is happening in the here and now. It's this, this paradox of us being, uh, us being changed or like having been changed, we are currently being changed and we will be changed is what he's speaking to. And in just those four verses, you see that picture of if you have been raised with Christ, so if it's, if it's something that you're already, you have already experienced being raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. And he concludes that with, because when Christ who is your life appears, you'll appear with him also in glory. 
So he's speaking to this, this new life that we have in Christ isn't just something that's to happen later, but it's something that we can be partakers in now and walk out and live in now. And we have this new status. We have this new position in Christ and it, it doesn't happen automatically. It should work itself out and find itself working out and working into our lifestyle. But it doesn't happen automatically. And so what Paul's going to address in chapter 3 are these different mindsets and practices and allegiances that we found that we held in our old self and now these different these new mindsets, practices and allegiances that we find in our new self. And he's going to use this language of he's, he's going to use language like you would use with changing clothes. Is is kind of the language that he's going to use. He's going to be talking about putting off and and putting on certain things. For the, the time that he's writing in, the Roman culture, status and, and social rank was everything. That your value, your worth, all of this is determined by where you rank in society. And where you rank in society is, is most obviously seen by what you wear. So in this culture... It was commonly understood that you are what you wore. Okay? So, in this culture, values or your value, your worth, it's obviously seen by what you wear. And, you know, in some ways, this can still find itself in our society where people are trying to find themselves or establish themselves and where they rank in the social hierarchy and they can do this through outward expressions, clothing can can be included. I found that the older I get, the, which pastor, people like Pastor Chet always give me a hard time whenever I say the older I get because uh, he reminds me that I'm still a, just a spring chicken. But the older I get, the more functional clothes become. That it's less about making myself known and more about just whatever it takes to do the job or do like whatever activity I'm currently doing. And, and Abby and I have had this conversation about how, you know, she now understands why mom jeans are called mom jeans. And, uh, you know, previously... You know, you can make fun of them, but now that you're a mom, it's like, man, mom jeans are actually really comfortable, so I don't care what other people think. I'm going to take her word for that, because, yeah, anyway, let's continue. So, status, lifestyle, value, all of these things, Paul's going to riff off of these common threads, no pun intended, and he's going to use this imagery to talk about our new status, our new lifestyle, our new value that we have in Christ because we have this new life in him. And so let's jump into that. Colossians 3 verse 5. It says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self along with its practices. So look at the language that Paul uses here. Put to death. Put away, put off. There's not much wiggle room in the statement put to death, okay? It's not, hey, there's some gray areas where, you know, sometimes this may be okay and, and you can continue walking in this. No, he said, he uses pretty harsh language. Put these things to death. And he gives two lists. The, the first list is sins of desire. And sins of desire are born out of lust. Okay, so in this list, he has sexual immorality, impurity, passion. So point of clarity here. Passion in our time and language, oftentimes we use the word passion to describe something in the positive sense. That we're really passionate about this thing or we want to have passion for Jesus. And oftentimes we use the word passion to express something that we have uh, positive desires for. In the ancient world, the word, what's translated as passion, was used to describe lust. So most translations would translate this word to be lust. So if you're someone who would consider yourself to be a passionate person, by show of hands, how many of you would say, I'm a pretty passionate person? Okay. So just a point of clarity that your passion is not what Paul, well, Anyway, your passion isn't what Paul is addressing here unless your passion is lust, okay? If that's your passion, then yes, it it falls into this list. But we need passion in the church. We need people to be on fire for the things of God. So that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about don't lust. So this list that he gives is kind of a, a shorthand list of Israel's high sexual ethic. So what what they determined to be right and wrong in regards to sexuality. And to put, it, to put it fairly conservatively, they had an above average ethic when it came to this. That it wouldn't be uncommon in, in Rome for, and most people did, to have a procreational relationship with your spouse, but have a recreational relationship with many other people. And they lived in a highly sexualized culture. Ring any bells? And so Paul is, is addressing these things. And this is one of the big critiques, I think, for, for a lot of people when it comes to Christianity, is whether it's this or something else like this, the, the critique is, man, Christianity just seems like a wet blanket. Like, like I can't have fun. I can't do what I want to do in following Jesus, because it's just a long list of rules and regulations, is often the common critique and why that's one of the barriers for people to to enter into the kingdom. But it's not, I mean, you and I know, it's not about the rules and the regulations, it's about the relationship, okay? You can sum up the law and the prophets, the, the Torah, which he's citing here for these ethics, You can sum all of that up in this. 
love God and love people. And that which, that which damages or harms relationship with God or damages and harms relationship with people is what we see as sin. And so this, these ethics and all of the other rights and wrongs, they're not just rules for the sake of rules. They're in place so that we can properly love one another and we can properly love God. And things that violate that or damage it are what find themselves in these lists of of sins. Because in engaging in these, our hearts and our minds can become corrupt and what ends up happening is the relationship gets damaged. And he... He concludes this first list, the sins of desire, with, uh, you know, don't covet, which is idolatry, he said. So even our relationship to the material world and wealth gets transformed in Jesus. Why? Because anything that you covet, you're actually putting in that place that we talked about earlier with worship, you're putting in that place that God and God alone should occupy. And you're desiring that above him. And that's violating love of God. The second list he goes on to do, or to give, is sins of discord. Sins of discord or disunity. And these are born out of anger or rooted in anger. Anger is an emotion that we experience. And experiencing anger is not a sin. Scriptures teach, be angry and sin not. So there is a way to process your anger in a healthy way. We don't always do that perfectly. And that's the problem. That's what Paul's addressing here, is anger, wrath, malice, slander, these different ways that we process our, our anger that lead to damaging relationship. So maybe for you, when you process anger the wrong way, it looks like it's, you're a bit more of an aggressive person, okay? So if you're a more aggressive person, maybe it comes out through shouting, through fits of rage, or just fits, and, and you do or you say something that you immediately regret. And at some point you come to and you wake up and you think like, how in the world did I just do that? Why did I just say that? I, how did that come out of me? Okay, it's, it's because you're dealing with anger the wrong way. Or maybe if you're more of a, a passive person, for you, dealing with anger in an unhealthy way may look like, total shutdown. Like you, you do the stonewall thing and you go totally silent, okay? And the temptation here is to think that just because you're not being explosive in your anger or you're not rageful, that you're processing it well. That's not always the case. Because sometimes in this situation, what can happen is that unresolved anger becomes resentment. 
and you begin to resent the other person. And what happens with resentment is that that wall gets built between you and them and you turn away from each other in the relationship. And this isn't all just, when I say the, the term relationship, it's, it's not just speaking to husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. It's just your, your relationships with one another. And resentment can creep in and oftentimes resentment can fly under the radar in ways that just the fit of rage doesn't. Okay, it's really obvious to tell that person's not happy with me right now when they're screaming at you in your face. But whenever the anger is processed in an unhealthy way and quietly, then that can fly under the radar. And what happens is over time, it damages the relationship. And so that's what Paul is getting at here is for the sake of loving God, for the sake of loving one another, we have, to, uh, we have to put off these practices. And he highlights lying, stop lying to one another, because lying destroys trust. And trust is one of the pillars in a relationship. And so if you continue to lie, it will continue to erode trust and the relationship will break down and be damaged. He's encouraging these people to put off all of these practices. Why? Because it's not who they are. It's not who you are. Those list of things. You may may be tempted with those things. You may experience those things. You may act on those things. But if you are in Christ... It's not who you are. And so Paul isn't just telling them to put off something, but he tells them to put on something. And a lot of times in church, we can just emphasize the things that we're to put off. Couldn't tell you how many times that in my my walk with Jesus, it seemed like it was nonstop. Here are all of the things that you shouldn't be doing. Okay, whenever I would... Whenever I would go to a, a church service somewhere, it seemed like the emphasis was constantly on the things that we should be putting off. Okay? What happens whenever that is the emphasis and maybe the only thing is if you're constantly being told, here's everything that you shouldn't do, where is your mind at? On all of the things that you shouldn't be doing. And that becomes. The, the point of emphasis. And that's the thing that you're constantly aware of. And you get yourself worked up about, okay, I shouldn't do, shouldn't do, shouldn't do that, shouldn't do that. I did it, and now shame, 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 shame. And you find yourself in this cycle. And whenever I started coming to, to victory, I realized very quickly that, that the teaching in this house had a dim, different emphasis than, than what I was accustomed to. The emphasis was on God's grace. Now that, and I also heard it in balance with, that does not make everything acceptable. But the emphasis being on grace did something. What it did is it put my attention on Jesus more than it did on my sin. And when my attention was more on Jesus than my sin, this crazy thing happened. I stopped sinning 
as much as I was before. I experienced freedom in areas that I hadn't before because I became more mindful and more aware of my new identity in Jesus than all of the practices, all of the mindsets, all of the allegiances that I had in my old self. So it's an important thing for us to be aware of both. We're not going to sit here and say, hey, you know, because of God's grace, you're free to do whatever you want. No, no, there, in this new life, there are new mindsets that we're to put on. There are new practices, new behaviors that we're to put on. There are new allegiances, and that's what we're gonna look at. So in verse 10, Paul goes on to say, and have, having put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after its creator, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So what Paul is saying is he's encouraging them, put on who you already are. Because if you're in, if you're in Christ, your old self has, has been put to death and has been buried. Your old self didn't get upgraded. It got killed. Your old self is dead and gone. And now we've been given this new self, this new identity. And he tells us to put on these new practices. The question is how? Because it's, it's a process to work these things into our lifestyles. And again, this doesn't happen automatically. It takes time. So what are we to do? First thing he's gonna say is put on the new mind. Put on the new mind. This is what in verses one through four we see. Because for, for Paul, there's this connection between our mind and our transformation. So in Colossians chapter three, it says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth. Why is it important that we are to set our mind on the things above, not on the things of earth? Because where our mind is at has a major influence on how we are to be uh, transformed and shaped. And in Romans 12, Paul writes, don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so here again, we see Paul talking about the importance of setting our mind on the things above, because where your mind's at, where your thoughts at, the things that you dwell on, think about, those will shape you and they'll form you. So be mindful of what image you're being formed into. So set your mind, put on your new mind. Next thing is he talks about putting on your new practices. Putting on your new practices. We're to no longer treat each other the way that we treated each other before. But we're to treat each other differently. You know, he goes into putting on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. You may say, that's great, 
I'm not a patient person though. Now that's not true. Who you really are, who you really are, your true self is patient. Because who you really are is in Christ, okay? That may not have come to full fruition yet, but that's why we're putting on our new mind. That's why we're putting on our new practices. It's not something you have to achieve or strive for or attain. It's something you already have, but you have to grow into it. It's a process. It's a process. And knowing who you are makes a huge difference on, on your transformation and on your formation. And that's why as, when we parent, when our kids do a blunder, my kids do blunders. I don't know if yours do, but mine do, you know, like, like wetting the bed in the middle of the night when they crawled into bed with you. And uh, I'm sorry, it's fresh. It's fresh. Happened literally last night. <laughs> it's a process. It's a process. I'm glad that I get to just walk through this inner healing with a few hundred people in front of me. And who knows how many people are watching online. Uh, but our kids do blunders. And whenever they do, obviously we, we address the behavior or whatever, but then we tell them that isn't who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. And whenever you tell someone who they are, you're influencing them through a pull rather than a push. And pull is a much, it, it's a much more effective means of influencing than a push. So encourage one another. See, when you, when you see each other, see each other for who, uh, for who you really are, even though it may not be really obvious yet. But call out the golden people and influence through a pull rather than a push. So we put on these new practices. One of those practices is forgiveness. He emphasizes forgiveness, which is a trademark Jesus move. For Jesus' teachings on forgiveness, if not the most radical, it's among the most radical teachings of Jesus. Totally foreign concept. For, for us to forgive one another. Go th- even the Old Testament. Go through the Old Testament and look at how many times a person forgave another person. It's not often, and it certainly wasn't an emphasis. But Jesus busts onto the scene and he talks about how we are to forgive one another. How we're to love even our enemy. We are to put on the new practices. The third thing is putting on new allegiances. Putting on new allegiances. These, it's not that these, these things, this, so this is referring to uh, verse 11 of, you know, now there's no longer Greek and Jew, uncircumcised, circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. It's not that these things ceased to exist, but they're now irrelevant in determining our worth, our value, our significance, our love, our relationship with one another. Because all of these things, all of these differences have diminished because Christ is raised. Check out what 
Scott McKnight says about this. He said that in Christ, the old is passe. The old is ethnic disunity, ritual disunity, socioeconomic hierarchies, cultural disunities, and gender domination, all shaping one's honor and sense of worth in society and before God. In Christ, because of what he has done, these things are no longer relevant in determining our worth, our value, and our significance. Because what Jesus does is he takes that which has always been separated and he brings it together. He reconciles it into himself. And so now we can look at each other and you realize everyone wants this. Everyone wants this kind of world, this type of society. Well, let me take that back. Most people. Most people really want this. They just don't know how to do it. They don't know how to get there. They they want there to be unity amongst races, amongst different social classes, amongst men and women. But the truth is, that wall of hostility is only torn down through Jesus. Because in Jesus, he tore down, he abolished the wall of hostility and he brought us all together, making in himself one new humanity, one new family. Kingdom New New Testament translation puts it like this. In, In this new humanity, there is no question of Greek and Jew, or circumcised and uncircumcised, or barbarian, Scythian, or slave and free. The king is everything and in everything. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is at the center of this whole thing. It's all because of what he's done. Because he died, he removed our old nature. He killed that which kills us so that we can put off the things that lead us and bring us into death. And he rose, he rose. And in his resurrection, he gave us new clothes. And these new clothes reveal our true identity as sons and daughters of God. And now we are to put them on and walk in them. Because all of creation is longing and groaning for the sons and the daughters of God to step up and realize who they are. I'm gonna close with, with this. We're going to read verses one through four in the message translation. The message paraphrase. So verse one. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what's going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. When Christ, your real life, remember, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too, the real you, the glorious you. Meanwhile, be content with obscurity like Christ.